Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. If you weren't already hooked on the news, the COVID-19 pandemic and the ceaseless storm of Trump presidency stories may have reeled you in. There are already a number of books dedicated exclusively to President Trump's tweets, but the 24-hour news cycle and the near-obsessive attention to politics emerged long before Donald Trump became president. Claire Bond Potter, professor of history and co-executive editor of Public Seminar at the New School, examines the evolution of the news media and politics and how they're affecting American political development in her new book, Political Junkies, From Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy. It's published by Basic Books, and I'm very pleased that it has brought Clara Bond Potter to our show. Hi. Hi, Leonard. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Didn't Hunter Thompson write about politics junkies in 1972? Hunter Thompson knew a thing or two about junkies. But what were politics junkies? (laughs) Right. Well, Hunter Thompson was the first person to coin the phrase. And, of course, the book begins in 1947. um, But it's really not until 1972 that Hunter Thompson, when he goes on the campaign trail in 1972 for Rolling Stone, really gets it that politics is a a high like no other high, and that when you're embedded with a political campaign, you want more and more of this thing that actually might also be killing you at the same time. But I think we also see the phenomenon of politics junkies emerging much, much earlier. And it is, of course, the audience that alternative media is made for after World War II. When did it first emerge and under what circumstances? Well, I think the circumstances in many ways is the war, um, World War II, in which newspapers became a way to be close to the action um, in Europe and in the Pacific. And for people who know things about their relatives who were deployed thousands of miles away. But what you see after World War II is one sector of the newspaper world collapses, and that is the progressive newspapers, um, the ones that are supported by donors um, and philanthropists that don't take uh, advertising, that have imagined themselves as independent from the political party structure. And they start collapsing after World War II, predictably, in part because of anti-communist backlash, and in part because financially they simply can't survive. And so what they do is they spit out these wonderful, wonderful journalists who have to look for something else to do. And among that crowd is Isidore F. Stone, otherwise known Mm. as Izzy or I.F. Stone, who loses his job at The Compass, the last progressive newspaper in New York, and realizes he can't get hired because of the McCarthy blacklist. And he goes everywhere to everybody he's ever worked for. And they're like, nope, Izzy, we can't take you. And so what he decides to do, sort of looking around at the terrain and knowing that he has a crowd of people, readers who love him, he decides to write a four-page newsletter. And he takes out a little ad in the front page of the New York Times that says Isidore F. Stone will be writing a newsletter. Please send $5 for a one-year subscription. And miraculously, people start taking out subscriptions, and not just ordinary people, but people like Eleanor Roosevelt, Marilyn Monroe buy subscriptions for all of Congress, and so on. 
So <laughs> Izzy Stone realizes that he can support himself by writing this newsletter. And what it is, is one story a week that is deeply researched and that is written independently of any editorial control and any advertiser control. And how long did he publish it, the Eye of Stone Weekly? So Izzy published this until 1971 when it becomes the bi-weekly. And, and at that point, he's actually pretty old. Um, and then he finishes up really at the end of 1971. So, so he does it for 17 years every week, um, except for that last year, and only being supported by his wife. Um, and then over time, he begins to get these interns, um, that many of whom turn out to be very, very famous journalists. So there are a whole cadre of people in journalism um, who had their first job with I.F. Stone. And what he teaches them is how to do research. But what he also does is he begins to draw a crowd of admirers, particularly in the 1960s, when all the corporate newspapers and the corporate news media are now they're struggling with this, but they don't report the Vietnam War honestly. What they do is they report what the government is telling them. I.F. Stone's, you know, mantra, and this becomes the mantra of alternative media, is all governments lie. And so in 1964, Stone announces that he's going to spend the whole year writing about the Vietnam War. And he is the first reporter to do the research that shows that the, um, the, Johnson administration has gone to war illegally. Hmm. Now, uh, alternative media uh, right now is a lot more than uh, just uh, I have Stone Weekly and uh, and that, that kind of thing. We're, we're in radio, TV. Of course, we're uh, also all over the Internet. Uh, we're talking about something that appeals to people who are passionate about politics, aren't we? Uh, and we're likely to, to know what their politics are. For example, uh, if they watch Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow. Right. And that has always been true of alternative media, which I think can, it distinguishes itself with, with several main characteristics. One is alternative media always positions itself against the establishment. Whatever you think the establishment is, alternative media is against it. Secondly, Alternative media is a place for passionate voices that passionate audiences want to hear. So it becomes the place where political junkies not only flock to, but are cultivated and become a particular kind of audience. The other thing that alternative media does, and you really see this in the 1960s when you see uh, newsletters being developed by the New Left, by feminists, by the Black Panther Party, is alternative media targets an audience and speaks directly to that audience in a political voice that that audience understands and about issues that that audience cares about passionately. So those are the real characteristics of alternative media. What's important about it is that, in fact, alternative media can be corporate. Um, Right now, one of the most valuable media properties around is the Drudge Report, which until 1997 was being produced out of um, Matt Drudge's apartment um, on, a, on a tiny computer. Um, and, you know, until quite recently, the other most valuable property, of course, was Breitbart News. Um, it's no longer as valuable as it was, 
Um, but Breitbart um, is a powerful corporate entity that, of course, actually is very, very powerful political tool as well. Well, both of those are on the Internet. But before that, um, mm-hmm. when did when did alternative media begin to make forays into radio and television? Uh, when BAI became a listener-sponsored station in 1960, and by the way, never took any corporate funding, uh, was it a pioneer or were there already other examples? Well, I think there were already other examples. For example, one of the things you see is that Conservative radio um, is a major form of alternative media that allows the right, um, everything from Dean Clarence Mannion to the John Birch Society, to get mm. on the radio waves, right? So, so the, the far right is using radio in the 1950s, even earlier, Father Coughlin, um, mm-hmm. the anti-Semitic Catholic priest um, from Michigan, um, he used radio to reach his audience. And again, this was also a means of collecting money from people. It wasn't, it wasn't that it was a, um, a nonprofit that was sort of limping along, <laughs> as many of our public radio stations, unfortunately, are today. Um, so, so radio was actually a relatively cheap means for people to get their message out. And it was particularly useful for conservatives because, of course, the FCC had something called the Fairness Doctrine. So that radio stations actually had to carry alternative points of view. So one of the earliest things you see happening is conservative radio hosts um, putting together tapes of conservative politicians, conservative conversations and so on, and shopping them around to radio stations that will put them on the air because they actually have to maintain a balanced programming style, right? Well, they don't have um, to any longer, yeah. but they still have Rush Limbaugh and, and Sean Hannity and a whole bunch of others uh, doing those right. shows. Now, you so mentioned Lim- compute. Go ahead. Finish your point. Well, I was going to say Limbaugh and Hannity are, are descendants of those original alternative radio producers. And actually, one of the things I would argue is that conservative radio is so successful today because conservatives have always used radio as a means of communicating with their audience. Now, computers and the Internet uh, opened the door to almost anybody who wanted to distribute content, content widely. Wasn't that supposed to have a democratizing influence? Absolutely. And there's a chapter of my book um, that's all about that. Uh, it's called Electronic Democracy. The early inventors of the Internet, actually, the people who were on ARPANET were mostly scientists. And scientists are, in general, somewhat utopian in their, in their attitude toward the world. But these early computer scientists who pioneered email, um, who built the first bulletin board services, otherwise known as BBSs, believed that the more voices you got in the mix, the more democratic the conversation was. And so some of our early Internet practices that really characterize alternative media um, are born in this moment. Um, For example, bulletin board services were moderated to some extent, but there was a tendency towards openness and freedom and a prejudice against editing and censorship. Um, You really see that as a sort of basic ethic of the blogosphere when it emerges in the early 21st century. Um, But what they also believed is that the more people talk to each other, the more democracy there would be. 
And what you really see in the 1970s and 80s as the Internet is being born is a steep decline in political participation. And so Internet people step in and say, actually, you know, participation is declining. But if we can get people online, if we can connect to people, they will be back. So you see um, all of these experiments in electronic democracy, for example, a set of meetings they had in the city of Detroit about why the schools were segregated. And the school system wanted parents to participate in them. But, of course, there were so many parents in Detroit, and how could you actually get all those people in the room? So they set up these electronic connections all over the city so that parents can actually go to their local school but still be in the larger meeting. So so we see the beginnings of a democratic networked world um, that will later reemerge in a more familiar form in 2004 in the Howard Dean campaign. Um, but we see that happening as early as the 1980s and early 1990s as tech people try to figure out how to link citizens together in one big polity. Have conservatives uh, also targeted media differently, aiming at local politics as much as or even more often than national? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think conservatives, and, and when we talk about conservatives, we're obviously talking about a large, complex, and various yeah. group of people. And people so from all over, for example, Paul Weyrich who is a co-founder of the Heritage Society, but also Richard Vickery, who's a direct marketing and advertising person. Uh, They they made particularly effective use of the full spectrum of media, print, radio, television, and then digital. They made excellent use of it. And I think one of the things that's important about both of those men, of course, is that they were both in the network of something called Young GOP or YGOP um, when they were young men. Um, And they were, even though they didn't know each other, they were reading the same newsletters. They were reading, they were going to conferences. They were listening to the same radio shows. So one of the things you begin to see as my book, Political Junkies, moves forward is that there are people who are media innovators who are already in some ways linked to each other through alternative media. But what Richard Vigory does most powerfully is he brings computers into political fundraising and political campaigning. So Vigory figures out in 1965 when he's working actually for um, the Young Americans for Freedom, he figures out that the Goldwater campaign is a moment in which even as, you know, the right wing of the, of the Republican Party is crushed, that there are people who he can collect in one place. So he goes off uh, to Washington and goes into the Federal Election Commission and copies down by hand the names of as many Goldwater donors as he can get. And that becomes the beginning of his database. He puts it on magnetized computer tape, and they're pictures of, of Richard Vigory standing in front of these banks of computer mainframes, which were, by the way, very expensive, um, that you had to feed tape into. And every single campaign he worked on, he collected more names. And of course, these names are not valuable unless you can use them. So he was one of the first people to figure out how to use the alternative media of computers to actually run political campaigns 
raise money and create a national political organization that was conservative. And and uh, Weyrich uh, proudly claimed to have brought the religious right into politics. And he did. And boy, was that more names for Richard Vigory's databases, right? Because Weyrich, Weyrich knew two things. He knew that media worked. Weyrich was trained first in radio and then in television. And he knew that conservatives listened to radio and watched television. And one of the things he knew, was, and actually, you know, Weyrich was very religious himself. Um, he was a very conservative Catholic. Um, but who he goes to are Protestant ministers who are doing a lot of their evangelical work on the airwaves, either on television or on radio, and who are raising money. You know, if, if you've ever watched one of these shows, there's an appeal to mm. send in your money. Well, every, every time someone sent in a check, they had their address on it, too. So these churches have enormous databases of names and addresses of conservatives. When Wyrick brings them into the movement and they come in on principle, um, he also gets those lists. And those lists go into Vigory's data bank. And then when the moral majority um, is founded in 1979, they've already got a national organization because of computers. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest, Claire Bond Potter, her book, Political Junkies, From Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy, is published by Basic Books. Now, what about uh, the the left? Uh, did the civil rights movement, Vietnam and Watergate, draw people into following politics more closely in, in, in the late 60s and, and early 70s? I certainly did. And I think one of the things you see on the new left, of course, is that some of the some of the great alternative media of the new left, like Liberation News Service, those are guys who have been reading IF Stone's newsletter. So they're trying to do what he does for their movement. But I think, you know, by the time we get to Watergate, um, I became fascinated with Watergate when I was a kid. Um, it's what made me into a political junkie. And so when I was writing this book, I kept thinking, how can, how can I get Robin McNeil and Jim Lehrer into this book? Mm -hmm. I started reading about them and realized that McNeil had been one of several people who were criticizing television news in the 1960s for what it didn't do. Um, and McNeil, who had worked for the BBC and had worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Service, particularly targeted advertisers and profits uh, as something that prevented reporters from really giving the news out. There's this very vivid moment in his career where he's going through tape that's just been flown in from Vietnam, and he sees a, an American soldier cut the ear off of Viet Cong. Um, and put it in his pocket. And he described it. I, you know, I sat with him in his living room. He described this moment to me and he said it was just horrifying. And then everybody looked at each other and said, we can't show that on television, can we? And so what he came to believe was that Americans would not support the war in Vietnam if they really understood what was going on there. But what they were seeing was a Hollywood type war movie pieced together by the news agencies. So McNeil actually ends up leaving uh, television news for a while. He writes a book and so on. And then he starts working for the new public broadcasting service. 
And I argue that public broadcasting is a form of alternative media because it is non-corporate and because it takes an independent stance from party politics. Um, and of well, course, people would call it centrist, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they call it centrist? The PBS News well, Hour now, fr- which is a, it's a descendant. Yeah, it's my, pretty much right yeah. middle of the road. They do call it centrist. Um, my friend Doug Henwood was saying that to me the other day. He said, you know, don't you think it's a little boring? Um, hmm. I would say that they consistently try to get people on who have opposing points of view, who articulate those points of view very strongly, who do not shout at each other and get theatrical. And to that degree, I would say what the PBS NewsHour continues to do that is alternative media is it sees its real mission as educating people and bringing its audience as close as possible to the people in power who are making decisions. Um, but what they, the way they get started, of course, is in Watergate. And what they do is they broadcast the Watergate hearings in their entirety. They bring in experts to comment on what's going on. And, you know, what we got was a national television drama that surely, in fact, contributed as much as anything else to Richard Nixon having to resign because Americans knew exactly what was being testified to. Actually, earlier we had the McCarthy hearings, didn't we, which uh, also had a real impact and brought down Joe McCarthy. uh, Well, Well, right now, go ahead. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is it's not insignificant that the person who produced that was Fred Friendly and that, you know, 10 years later, Fred Friendly is saying to the networks, why are we not doing what we were doing during the Army McCarthy hearings? Why are we not showing the U.S. government to the people? And, you know, the network said, well, it, CBS said, you know, we want to sell advertising time. You know, that's not going to pay. So Friendly actually ends up leaving CBS and, you know, with some money from the Ford Foundation, cobbles together all these independent public television statement uh, stations into um, what becomes public broadcasting service. Are we seeing something uh, even uh, more intense now, comparable to uh, the, the, that, uh, the footage, for example, from Vietnam, uh, with people posting cell phone footage of, of, of the police beating African-Americans and protesters with President Trump's deployment in Portland of what looked like a lot of secret police. And I'm assuming now we're going to have more reports from Chicago, Albuquerque, even New York City. Uh, there are so many stories that we know now that really create a sensation that weren't even possible before people had cell phones. Yes, that's absolutely right. And and we are now at a stage in American culture, as you're saying, in which everybody has the potential to broadcast right at their fingertips. Um, and that obviously started 10 or 15 years ago. But the capacity for people to report on the scene and actually make the news, drive incidents into the news that actually reporters don't want to cover, and that actually has been a historic function of, of alternative media is to force the mainstream media to address things that they don't want to talk about. Um, but what it also has produced, unfortunately, is fake news. Hmm. So we are all now inundated from with so many sources from so many places that are not edited 
really the consumer, the person who is scrolling through Twitter or scrolling through Facebook has to be very, very savvy to separate out what is real from what is staged. Now, uh, getting back to uh, the, uh, the the earlier times, can, uh, uh when did conventional mainstream media begin to see alternative media as a challenge? Didn't digital media undermine the mainstream narrative during the first Gulf War, uh, during George H.W. Bush's administration? Well, it, it did and it didn't. And I would push us back even a little further to the creation of CNN in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, the emergence of an alternative news network that broadcasts news 24 hours a day really makes the mainstream network sit up and pay attention because all of a sudden there's a channel that will report anything, and they did report anything, and you know often that wasn't such a great thing. Mainstream reporters sometimes referred to CNN as the chicken noodle network because their their sets were always falling apart and. Half the time they were reporting, uh, you know, a lost dog running around in the woods. And so, you know, they just had to fill time. Um, But mainstream networks really begin to sit up and take notice around the Gulf War, as you're saying, when CNN is the only network that does not pull its reporters out of Baghdad before the American assault. And so for the first time, Americans actually see their own country attacking a major global city. And that is something that the mainstream networks were simply not able to do. And they had to work off the CNN feeds. Um, So that's really important. But I would also say we see the limits of mainstream media being hit because the, the Bush administration decides they don't want another Vietnam on their hands. So what they do is they embed reporters in units. Reporters can no longer wander around and go from place to place or hear that something has happened in another place and hitch a ride and go and report on it, as they did in Vietnam. So the role you see alternative media playing in the Gulf War is there is a bulletin board service called PeaceNet. And all of these independent journalists, you know, evade the military ban Um, Many of them are from the Middle East themselves, and they start reporting independently and uploading the information on PeaceNet so that, in fact, the really good reporting about the Gulf War is being done by independent alternative journalists. And many of the mainstream journalists are going to PeaceNet to try and figure out what actually happened because they don't know because they were stuck in one place and they didn't see it. Another more recent development is podcasts. And you write, when every political junkie gets news tailored to their taste, it's not just our candidates that lose, democracy does. How is democracy being harmed by all of this uh, because of all the political polarization that's tied to these uh, media trends? I think alternative media both thrives on political polarization. And you can see that at the earliest stages because you have, you know, either the new left or Richard Vigory or whoever creating media specifically for an audience that they're targeting. Right. So that so the political polarization has existed for a long time. It's never been as extreme as it is now. And I think one of the reasons it is so extreme is alternative media 
has really taken over the landscape. There is so much being produced, so much being distributed. It's all funneling into Twitter and Facebook, which are themselves alternative media platforms being sorted for us through algorithms. So you actually have to work to get out of what Ezra Klein calls the, the filter bubble. Um, you know, if, if you really have to work against the algorithm, you have to actively seek out other sources of news. You have to subscribe to papers that are, and um, sites that are not of your political persuasion. And alternative media has only con continued to proliferate. I mean, we now have Substack um, in which independent journalists, and the vast majority of journalists are now independent journalists, can write for themselves, can be their own Izzy Stone sure. and deliver it right into somebody's email box. But then do you get that and then go and say, oh, look, maybe I should go read a conservative substack, or maybe I should go read a liberal substack, or maybe I should go read a democratic socialist. Mostly we don't. We become comfortable with the voices we know. They're trusted voices. Um, and we rarely say, I wonder what somebody else's view is about this. Well, often uh, when I uh, see somebody else's view, I find it so offensive uh, that it's hard for me to to stay with it very long. I'm not going to name names, but uh, probably can guess. Uh, political mm -hmm. divisions may be growing, but don't many Americans still tend to sit out elections? Isn't turnout in the U.S. still low compared to other industrial democracies? And that's despite right. so th the fact that we have all these political junkies. Right. Well, I, I think it, it is a paradox, isn't it? And I think one feature of that paradox is often when we are feeding our habit for politics on a daily basis, we feel like we're doing politics when actually we're not, or we're not actually getting the message to the people who need to hear it, or we're certainly not getting out there and registering people to vote. I mean, low political participation in the United States is a number of sources one of which is that many politicians don't actually want us all to vote. You know, that if you keep the turnout low enough, and certainly that is a, a Republican position and has been for a very long time. Paul Weyrich famously mm. said in 1980, I don't want everybody to vote. Um, and so, so there's a lot that mitigates against turnout, but I think – Alternative media feeds into that problem because when we're battling people on Facebook and Twitter, we feel like we are fully politically engaged when, in fact, if we would leave our houses and go knock on some doors and hand out some campaign literature, which I actually did earlier this year, it's an entirely different experience and it's an entirely different way of understanding the politics of your community. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. You know, I've been hearing more and more about a thing called fake news. Fake, fake news. I've seen people destroyed, and I think it's very unfair. Some of the media outlets that I deal with the fake news. Fake, fake news. I think it's a disgrace. The absolute disgrace, but I don't think they care. Well, first of all, one of the reasons I'm here today is to tell you the whole Russian thing. That's a ruse. That's a ruse. I own nothing in Russia. I don't have any deals in Russia. Russia is fake news. I just see many, many untruthful things. The press has become so dishonest. 
The public doesn't believe you people anymore. You have a lower approval rate than Congress. You know, I've been hearing more and more about a thing called fake news. Fake, fake news. I've seen people destroyed. I guess uh, you're surprised to hear that uh, the president also records songs. Uh, before I get back to my... <laughs> Before I get back to my conversation with the Claire Bond Potter, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to please consider becoming a member of WBAI. We need all of our loyal listeners to step right up now and go to our website, uh, uh, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number 516-620-3602. Our website is give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two WBAI.org. And, and one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. Joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, to tell you about a special offer for anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy during today's show. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Great to be here. Yes, today and today only, we are offering... Uh, the book that Leonard has been discussing with Professor Claire Bond Potter, Political Junkies from Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy. Uh, I think anyone listening to this station understands the role that independent media plays in the media landscape of our country. And this is a book that really lays out why it is so important for you to support news outlets that are not driven by corporate dollars. Now, uh, which is pretty much it, everything, it, but we should point yeah. out, I mean, N NPR, yeah. uh, PBS, uh, they can be great at times, but they are supported by corporate dollars. And we have heard stories about uh, that having an impact on the way they have uh, reported some stories. Go of ahead. course, I'm we all know those those stories. Uh, you know, maybe you'll even be discussing some of them in the second portion of the interview. Uh, you know, the, right. Because and regular listeners to the show will have heard this before, but this is why the pandemic has been so damaging for our funding model at WBAI. When you hurt, we hurt. Uh, everyone is struggling right now. So many people, uh, well, hopefully not everyone, but we know that so many of you are uh, in a difficult position financially. A lot of our regular longtime supporters have been forced to pull their funding. So if you're someone who listens to Leonard Lopate at large and values this kind of in-depth content, these one-hour deep dive interviews, maybe now is the time to step up and sponsor this show. You are our sponsors. The listeners are our only sponsors. Maybe do it for someone else who's been forced to pull their funding because uh, the situation is so dire right now. So again, to get back to the offer, if you become a BAI buddy, that's what Leonard was talking about before, a sustaining member of the station, someone who makes a contribution of $10 or $20, 30 whatever you want every month taken out of your credit or debit card, you can cancel anytime. 
if you uh, if you sign up today to to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, we will send you as our way of saying thanks a free copy of the book Leonard's been talking about with uh, Professor Claire Bon Potter, political junkies from talk radio to Twitter, how alternative media hooked us on politics and broke our democracy. And, you know, Leonard, we, we sometimes mention that we, it's always nice when we can sort of have an overarching theme to the week of shows. And I would say if there's a theme this week, it's how did we get here? Right. <laughs> uh, on Tuesday, you were speaking to Julian E. Zelser, his book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, is about the way that our politics became harsh. But obviously, you can't talk about the harshness, the acrimony in, in American politics right now without talking about media and the way that media bias informs that, which is where we get back to Professor Potter's book. Which I want to get back to very quickly, but a reminder, the number to call is 516-620-3602. You can go to our website, give2wbai.org. That's give, and then the number 2wbai.org uh, to support independent radio. And uh, please don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. Uh, if you want uh, a copy of the book, that's great. If you want to just support us in other ways, we, we uh, welcome any show of support that you can give. And uh, Jesse, thank you so much. And let's get back to my guest. Okay. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, now, you discuss, for example, uh, a video that went viral under the hashtag uh, Covington Boys in January 2019. Uh, it involved yeah. Nick Sandman a student at the Covington Catholic High School and an elderly Native American. Uh, can, can you summarize what happened uh, both in the encounter at the Lincoln Memorial and in the news reports and what happened later in the courts? Sure. I, I certainly can, Leonard. And I just want to say I'm so flattered that you're giving my book away. I can't even speak. Um, but yeah. Oh, we, we, think, we think it's worth it. We think, we think it definitely people will be excited. <laughs> Go ahead. It's wonderful. Um, so the Covington Boys video is a group of young men from Covington Catholic High School uh, in Virginia, I think. And they were bused, as many Catholic high school students are every year, to the March for Life in Washington. As it happened, there were several marches that day, and another one of them was the Indigenous Peoples March. But the first that many of us knew about this, there was a very short video on the Internet of the Covington boys, and in the middle of them was this kid, Nick Sandman, who was being confronted by a Native American elder who was beating a drum, and the the caption underneath said, you know, this MAGA loser. And one of the things I realized when I saw this video sort of zipping around the Internet was that the phrase, because I was in the middle of, of writing this book, that the phrase, this MAGA loser, was designed to attract two distinct crowds of viewers, conservatives who would want to defend this kid and liberals and leftists who would want to attack this kid, right? And that's exactly what happened on the Internet. And the story, the initial story from it was that Nick Sandman and his 
his friends had surrounded this poor, lonely Native American man and prevented him from completing a ritual that he was doing in Washington, D.C. And the rage against these kids was just epic. And the kinds of things people were writing about them were just epic. You know, that that Nick Sandman reminded them of Brett Kavanaugh, that these kids were awful people, that they were white supremacists, that they were racists, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things I noticed about the video is it had, had been shot and cut in such a way that there was no context. So you actually had no idea what had happened before, what had happened after, what was actually happening around these people. And it turned out that the video, and this is an interesting thing about alternative media now, the video had been deliberately cropped in such a way as to make it appear that Nick Sandman was bullying this Native American man. In fact, that turned out not to be the case. It turned out that um, Nathan Phillips, the Native American elder, had a lot of people around him. He had a film crew with him and that his people were also heckling and yelling at these kids who were sort of yelling back. The kids had actually been in, the, in that place waiting for their bus for two hours. They had been being heckled by a group called the Black Israelites. So it was, a, it was a very complicated confrontation, which I think everyone would now say, if they were being honest, that the kids from Covington High School were not responsible for it. And in fact, there's plenty of evidence that Nick Sandman was actually trying to get his friends to stop doing what they were doing and standing in between them and, and Nathan they, Phillips. And they sued CNN and, and got a lot of money. Uh, but, you know, we, it they, works both they, ways. Fox recently cut out, uh, cut Donald Trump out of a photograph uh, with, uh, with Epstein. Uh, so uh, I guess, yeah. uh, so, well, it, you and, know, and it's, it's still happening. It is still happening and it will continue to happen as long as we do not regulate social media. And one of the problem with the, with the Covington boys um, incident was that reporters were reporting from Twitter. And if you read books about the 2016 campaign, Katie Tour will say this, that, you know, most of the reporters she was with all the time were actually not reporting the story. They were often blocks away from the story and they were reading their Twitter feeds to try mm -hmm. and figure out what was happening. So reporters have been using Twitter as a tip line for a long time. I think in some ways Donald Trump has ruined that because, you know, everything yeah. he says is a lie. Um, but, but I think what you're picking up on, Leonard, is absolutely right. Both sides do it. It is a form of dishonesty. And one of the things it, it speaks to is that alternative media is now a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And that what it exists for, for many of the alternative media producers, is to produce clicks, to get all of us to send things around, to come back to Facebook over and over and over again, to come back to YouTube over and over again. So we've hit a place with alternative media where it's not that it doesn't do good. And I think you're mentioning the Black Lives Matter protests, which have mm -hmm. occurred around documented incidents of police murdering black people is one excellent example. Um, it's not that it doesn't do any good. It's that in the wrong hands, it does plenty of bad too. But even earlier, for example, uh, 
dissenting voices have often sought ways around the gatekeepers or the mainstream. For example, in 2004, when Bill Keller at the New York Times refused to run James Rison's and Eric Lichtblau's reports on Bush-era domestic surveillance, Rison set out to reveal the facts in a book. So uh, right. today he probably would just start uh, posting uh, things on the Internet. Uh, but right. so it's a little easier today. Right. Uh, do alternative media reports like those on Edward Snowden put pressure on the mainstream press uh, that they barely felt at all before digital media? Well, they absolutely do. And I think we can go back before 2004. Let's go to 1997 when um, there is a story at Newsweek ready to go that says Bill Clinton had an affair with Monica Lewinsky and lied about it when he was deposed. And it is factual. It is deeply reported. And Newsweek decides 12 hours before they go to press that they're not going to run it. And somehow that reporting makes its way to Matt Drudge, who puts it on the Drudge Report. And, you know, there are people in Washington who follow the Drudge Report all the time for the various little bits of stuff he puts out, which are sometimes right and sometimes wrong. But this is absolutely right. Drudge puts it out. He breaks the story. He becomes a superstar. Um, and the mainstream media is forced to cover it at last. Well, do the New York Times and other mainstream news organizations associate being centrist with being objective, which uh, I guess uh, objectivity is a goal. Uh, discussing coverage of Vietnam, Seymour Hersh has written, I'm quoting, if you supported the war, you were objective. If you were against it, you were a lefty. And I'm yep. assuming that's and true if in many, many places, media outlets about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sure. And Cy Hirsch is a great example of somebody who had a few jobs for mainstream newspapers, but he was never happy. Um, and he he actually was great friends with Izzy Stone. And he really decides that the way to best do his work is to be an independent journalist. And this is long before the time in which most people had to be independent journalists because it's so difficult to get a full-time job. Um, but I also think one of the things alternative media does is it creates outlets for people who don't want to be objective at all and who don't value objectivity. So it, it creates a possibility of a site like ZDare, which is an, an alternative right, racist, white supremacist website um, that continues to thrive um, and, and is free to look at. Um, but it also creates possibilities for something like The Intercept. Um, which has broken all kinds of terrific stories from an unapologetically radical angle. Um, so that what alternative media has done is create a bunch of sort of satellites, some of which actually make a lot of money and are supported by um, major donors, so that it's put pressure on mainstream sites like the Washington Post, like the New York Times, to actually re-examine the idea of objectivity over and over again. Like now, it seems to be objective to call the president a liar. But remember how they struggled with that in the first year of the Trump presidency? And all of us were sort of sitting here saying, when are they just going to say it? The guy is lying. The man is a habitual liar. And finally, the New York Times sort of went, <clears throat> 
you know, after long conversations, we've decided that it's appropriate to use this word. <laughs> but I think that followed Washington Post doing something very clever, which is just uh, issuing those Pinocchios uh, and uh, right. doing it as kind of objective journalism rather than uh, calling the president a liar. Uh, they also uh, give other people Pinocchios. Now, Absolutely, um, but I think, yeah. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's a good example of the mainstream learning from alternative media, because actually prior to the Washington Post doing that, there, all of these sites had sprung up, Snopes.com, FactCheck.com. There's, there's a big site at the University of Pennsylvania Media School, and they were fact-checking regularly. So you could go to those sites and find out whether something was true or false. That gets ported in to the Washington Post when they start giving out Pinocchios, right? That's a version of the pants on fire and, and so on that you're seeing at, at these other fact-checking sites. Over the past 30 or 40 years, hasn't, haven't most of the mainstream political uh, media coverage tended to appeal to an inside-the-beltway audience? So even if it had a national scope, um, until recently, have most of the mainstream media tended to ignore issues of concern to women, the poor, workers, and, and people of color? That's absolutely true. And that's why, you know, if this were an even longer book than it is, <laughs> it would go before World War II, um, looking at the, ver the numbers of newspapers that thrived in American cities, you know, in in 1860, for example, Cincinnati had five German-language newspapers that spoke to the issues of the Im immigrant community. Um, and so, really, newspapers played that role until after World War II, as, as, and then gradually newspapers were dying off. So I would say, yes, establishment media speaks to establishment politics, and establishment politics speaks back to establishment media. And that's why alternative media is so important. Now, I would also say what we really saw in 2015, 2016, was Donald Trump weaponizing alternative media. In other words, he, he basically blew off um, establishment media long before um, he began calling names at CNN and, and The New York Times and so on. And he really pinned himself to Breitbart. And Breitbart pinned itself to Donald Trump. So we're actually seeing alternative media playing a similar role to what the establishment used to do when, in fact, a non-establishment politician hits the scene. But you write in the world of political junkies right and left, when a political narrative fell true, it was true. So when the president uh, started screaming fake news about things that obviously were not fake, uh, people who wanted to believe, believed it. Uh, what can lead people to pause and reconsider? Right. I think that's an excellent question, Leonard. And I think people believe because they believe the larger narrative that Washington is corrupt. Washington doesn't care about me. Washington is about itself. And so when Trump just came out and said that, people believed that was true without sort of pausing to say, well, what is, you know, 
all the tax dollars that they're paying in New York are actually coming to Oklahoma. You know, people don't go to that kind of granular detail. What I do think we can do to get people to start paying attention, and this speaks to your fundraising drive, is we need to invest in media. We need to invest money. We need to invest in education, media education. We need to train good reporters. And we need to support good media um, and have it really sort of drown out bad media. I think, you know, one of the problems with corporate financing, um, and I understand your critique of PBS from this point of view, one of the problems with corporate financing is it allows a particular media voice to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I feel this way about MSNBC, um, with which I am, you know, more or less politically simpatico. But it's very difficult to watch show after show after show where they keep sort of telling you the same thing over and over and over again yeah, without introducing any new evidence. And I love the fact that these stations all start off with breaking news, and it's a story that you heard on the previous show. Um, you're one of the executive <laughs> editors of Public Seminar at the, at the New School. Is Public Seminar aimed at counteracting some of the trends that you're examining in your book? you got to tell me quickly because we're pretty much out of time. It absolutely is, and we are reader-supported, um, which is extraordinarily important to us. And what we do is we try and get knowledgeable people to speak to a general audience, people who really know what they're talking about, who have done deep research and translating that into stories that speak to people's real interests and needs. Um, so and, we and Claire, are i got to leave it there. Claire Bonpotter, right, her book, Political Junkies, from Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy from Basic Books. What a pleasure it has been talking to you today. Thanks so and much that, for having me, Leonard. I loved it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom, who prepared today's interview. If you're discovering this program and you'd like to hear more uh, about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. You can also visit our website, LetItLocateAtLarge.com, where there are links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to send me your comments about or simply say hello, you can send me an email at lendedlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned before, BAI is in a very difficult situation right now, and we're hoping that you will come to our support by becoming a member, uh, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to wbai.org. Uh, become a buddy if you can. Uh, help keep community radio uh, alive in the tri-state area. And we hope you'll join us tomorrow when two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter James B. Steele will discuss his latest book, America, What Went Wrong? The Crisis Deepens. We'll see you then.